Hi friends, we had some uh, technical difficulties at the beginning of this message uh, entitled Private Parts from Genesis chapter 17, uh, part of our Genesis series. So this is just a brief introduction to catch you up to where we pick up the recording. Uh, we read verses 1 through 14, and then we discussed how in verse 1, this is the first occurrence of the word El Shaddai, which some scholars believe may have come from a word which means overpower or destroyer, which is why the word is often translated in our Bible as almighty. And we pick up the message from there. And so they said, well, a good English equivalent is going to be almighty. And so most of the time in the Bible, when you see the word El Shaddai, you're going to see the word almighty. However, the word El Shaddai actually has some other possible nuances, other possible translations. The first is the word Shad in Hebrew, or Shaddai means breast or breasts which may mean that the word Shaddai means my breast, which is a euphemism for saying my nourishment, the God who gives me everything that I need, my food, my, my nourishment, the thing that I need to be sustained. There is a third possible interpretation of this word El Shaddai, which I think comes um, very poignantly in this text, and this is the word die. The word die in Hebrew means enough. It means sufficient. It is all that we need. And so it's possible to translate this word, the God, the one who is enough, the one who is sufficient, the one who will take care of everything, the one who will fully complete all of my needs, the one who is enough, the one who is sufficient. So I'm going to suggest to you that you have those three different readings, God Almighty, God is my nourishment, And then this third one, God who is enough, the God who is sufficient. And I'd really love to kind of put that as one of the first posts in this message. To understand in this narrative of Scripture that one of the main messages is this God that this Abraham is following, this God that we worship, is enough. We don't need any more. We're not striving for any more because everything that we need, everything that we need to take care of is taken care of by God. God is enough. Now, in this passage, there's a covenant. God says to walk before me. He says to be blameless. And he says, I'm going to make you exceedingly numerous. Now, reading this carefully, again, this isn't an in-depth study, but if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, five chapters earlier, this is essentially a repetition of what's going on there. The, The promise that God gave to Abraham that he's going to be Uh, this blessing to the entire nations. Then it's repeated here in Genesis 17. And so the question that emerges is, if it's repeated here in Genesis 17, it's this important. God is reminding Abraham what his role, his responsibility, what his calling is. Why circumcision? Now, this is a really important question for anybody who's reading this. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense, especially in light of the fact that the very first commandment in in the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. And so Adam and Eve, their commission is to be fruitful and multiply. And the other covenant that God gives, the very first covenant that God gives, is the rainbow. That's Noah's covenant. This is going to be the sign of my covenant, which causes Abraham to go like, what? Like, seriously, why circumcision? Like, Noah got the rainbow, you know? (laughs) Couldn't we have like a secret handshake? Maybe there's a pin number. I've heard of something like signing on the dotted line. There's got to be a different way to cut this covenant. So the question is, no, seriously, why 
circumcision. What is this really all about? Especially in light, if you take into historical context, the fact that they used Flintstones, they didn't have all of the medical equipment that we have today, but of course not these Flintstones, these Flintstones. Now take into consideration that this story, some of you are cringing right now, now take into consideration in this story that Abraham is 99 years old when this happens too. So now you have this whole other level of what in the world is going on. I mean, like, no anesthetic, you got Flintstones, you're 99 years old. So I want to ask the question, why? What is this really all about? And why is this in here? Because honestly, it's a little uncomfortable and sometimes it doesn't make sense. And at first glance and reading of passages like this, this is sometimes passages that cause people to go, see, I don't want to have anything to do with this thing called the Bible because this is still in here. So a brief disclaimer. First, we're going to be talking about some earthy stuff and some anatomy. I'm going to do my best not to be indiscretionary. I'm going to try to provide some good historical context for you. Just want to warn you that the Bible is very earthy. So we're going to be earthy, and we're not shying away from it. This is in your text. This is in the sacred scriptures that we have. And the second disclaimer that I want to share is part of the reason why we talk about this, I guess, quote from the pulpit is because everybody's talking about this in all sorts of other different ways everywhere you go. And in fact, as you know, the Super Bowl is right around the corner, and you start getting excited for all the commercials that you're going to watch and all those different types of things, we know that very personal, uncomfortable things even get shown on TV in the midst of all of that kind of stuff. So if that's happening all around us, we shouldn't shy away from talking about it here. Again, we're not going to be in, um, we're not just going to talk about just for fun, but it is important to us to make sure that we head on into this conversation, fully engaging with what's really going on here with a heart that's capable of having a very earthy conversation. Are you okay with that? Can, can we do that? To understand what's going on with the question of why is circumcision in this story, I want to share with you two things. The first is the symbolic nature of the biblical literature. The Bible is full of symbolism and meaning and analogy. Now, that doesn't take away from the historical realities of the Bible. We often pit those two against each other. For example, is the Bible historical or is it just like an analogy, just a story? Um, I'm not having that conversation, but I want to say that even within the history of the Bible, there are deep symbols. There's deep pictures and imageries, uh, images and analogies that are being taught there. And number two, as you have shared and partnered with us with Spark, there's some cultural context that I think is going to be helpful. Now, some of the symbols that exist. For example, this is one of my favorite uh, symbols. Did you notice in this passage, in Genesis 17, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which is a symbolic picture, uh, imagery of this passage, I will make your name great. You see the play on what God is doing there? Abram's name was shorter, and God added a letter, and he made his name greater. So the imagery of Abram going to Abraham, his name literally getting bigger, is an image or a picture of what God is doing actually in and through Abraham, that he's going to make his name great, which means that he's going to have great repute, that he's going to be well-known, but he does so in the image in the picture of Abram becoming Abraham. And what's fascinating, if you do that study, the letter that God adds to Abram's name is one of the letters of God's divine name. So it's almost as if Abram's name gets an increase in his name through the intervention of God himself into his very 
name. So that's one of the pictures that's going on there in the Abram to Abraham. So what's the image and the picture or the symbol of circumcision? My wife likes to talk about something called concentric circles of holiness. And what she means by this, this is a phrase that I picked up from her, is this. That there are certain parts of your body that are fully visible to the public. But yet, as like tan lines or other kinds of clothing come into play, as things get smaller into more specified areas, there are certain levels of holiness that only certain, never mind. So the concept or the idea here, I think is actually the same in the biblical scriptures. That the, there are some things that are appropriate for things to be seen or to be imaged to other people. The things that are allowed to be public. But yet there are some things, going back, even hearkening back to the Adam and Eve story of covering, that are personal and private to yourself. It only occurs, or your interaction, your awareness of, your, being, your ability to be visible with, is now limited. This is something that is very personal and private to you. So I think what's going on, part of the circumcision story with Abraham, is it's taking place using, again, very earthy language and using human anatomy to describe something about the human experience that takes and illustrates that there are things that are external, there are things that are public, there are things that everybody sees, but yet there are also things about Abraham, his story, his calling, his life, and his humanity that some people don't see. It's illustrating that there are personal and private parts of each and every one of us. I noticed you all wore clothes today. Why? Because there are some things that the public is not supposed to see. And again, this is a very earthy language, but I think that's part of what the illustration is there. I think this is picked up later on in some other passages like Deuteronomy, where the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The idea of loving somebody with your heart, with your soul, is something that people can't necessarily see. It's something that's personal, something that's private. It's something that's hidden. And this is picked up again in the book of Romans. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit and by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from, the, from other people, but from God. Romans 2, 28 through 29. So this motif or this idea or this theme of circumcision is illustrating something about us and illustrating something about Abraham. Abraham is going to become a great nation. He's going to do great things. He's going to love the stranger, as we talked about last week. He's going to take care of his household. There are things that people are going to be able to see. But I think, and I propose to you, that part of what's going on in this element of the covenant is that God is not just concerned with those things that you see, the things that are public, the things that you're going to do with your hands, the things that people can see. I think God is also making a covenant with Abraham and with us in the most personal, deep, hidden, secret, private parts 
of our lives, the things that people don't see, the areas of our soul that we don't let out, the, the things that happen in here that we struggle with, that we, we strive with, the things that we wrestle with silently, that our friends, our family, our neighbors don't know about. That, I think, is one of the illustrations, one of the pictures of what's going on here. God is covenanting with Abraham because he's going to be a great nation and go do things. But that's not the only covenant. That's not the only relationship God wants with Abraham to go do things. God wants a relationship with Abraham in the most personal, private parts of who he is. Now, second, some historical context. In this passage in chapter 17, there are some signs, there's some symbols, there's some key words that illustrate what's going on here. The sign of circumcision or the act of circumcision is called by God a mark. It's going to be a mark. Now, why is that important? Why is this covenant supposed to be a mark? It's going to be a sign. Well, one possible illustration or one possible way of thinking about this is thinking about ancient cults. Now, this is a kibble. This is Kibla. Kibla is an ancient goddess from the Greco-Roman times. This is a statue that dates all the way back to about 6,000 BC. So we know that this cult has existed and one of these religions that has, you know, kind of been around the ancient world for a little while. She was born in Anatolia and in Greece. Uh, she was also born on a mountain, so she's also known kind of as the mountain mama. And she's kind of the mother of all goddesses a little bit. Now, Kibbala has all sorts of myths and stories around her. Now, again, here's where we're going to get earthy. And again, I apologize for getting a little bit. Um, here we go. Part of one of the stories around Kibla is a story of a consort with another god named Attis. Now, again, this is mythology. In this story, if you read some of the mythologies, and there's some conflicting stories in the history, but in all of the stories, Attis, out of some sort of worship, some sort of love, some sort of relationship with Kibla, ends up castrating himself and sacrificing all of his personal and private parts to the gods and the goddesses. In other words, he cuts them. We don't need to be any more graphic than that. Now, Kibla eventually evolves over time to become the goddess Diana and Artemis. Now, this is important because in the book of Ephesians and in the book of Acts, later on in your New Testament, Artemis is being worshipped there. Now, the round protrusions on the front of Artemis, scholars have had all sorts of debates about what they are. And one of the possible explanations might be a connection to this story of Addis. I'm terribly sorry. I can see you guys are really uncomfortable right now. So just uh, take a deep breath and we're, we're going to get through this. But part of that story is the worship or your covenant or your dedication to this god or goddess therefore meant... Cutting it all off. And all the guys in this room are like, yeah. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, really, honestly. Because in your Bible, we have examples of this. Matthew 19. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. And a eunuch is somebody who doesn't have his private parts. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it, <clears throat> which I like to joke about that the one who should accept it really is my dog, because this has now become my dog's life verse. There are some people that are made eunuchs by other people. 
That, sorry about that, yes. So that's his. And we have the example of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. So throughout the scriptures, again, this is very uncomfortable, but th- there is this concept and this idea that to worship or to be covenanted with or to give honor to a god or a goddess, you actually had to remove a, the, the most personal and private parts of yourself to that god or goddess. So my question is this. If that is part of some of the cultural context of what's going on in this story, what possible lesson or comparison or contrast could we have with this idea of this covenant of circumcision? Here's what I would suggest. Number one, circumcision represents the most personal and private parts of ourselves. And I I mean that to mean for us, the things that people don't see, it's this emotional turmoil, the things that are private psychologically, spiritually, the things that we carry deep inside our souls. That's why this most personal and private part comes into the covenantal story. Because all of us in this room are made up of things that people see and things that people don't see. Things that are public and things that are very, very private. However, number two, circumcision also represents a marking, a consecration of, not a cutting off. And what I mean by that is this. In these other cults, you had to take that which is most personal and private and to give it away as part of your devotion, as part of your worship. But what God clearly says to Abraham is this is going to be a sign, a mark. I don't want you to cut off that which is most personal and private to you. I don't want you to get rid of, I don't want you to do that to yourself. I want you to be reminded that every time you see and every time you think about our covenant, even that thing, the most personal and private part of you, is also part of the covenant. And I, God, want to make sure that all of you, Abraham, everything about who you are, everything that I've created you to be, is covenanted with me. Don't cut it off. Don't think it's bad. Don't think it's evil. Don't get rid of it. Mark it. Recognize that it's there because it's a part of how I've created you. Recognize it's there because, guess what? It's going to be a part of the covenant. It's going to be part of my calling upon your life. It's going to be a part of what I am seeking to do in and through you. Mark it. And every time you see it, every time you look upon it, every time you are reminded, oh, even that part of myself is covenanted with God. Even that part that I don't tell anybody about, even that part is covenanted with. That thing that I've been holding so dear and close that nobody knows about, that part is also covenanted with God. And that is to be marked. Now, why, this is important because oftentimes we, we hide it so much, those things that are so secret to us, that we sometimes don't even let God into that area. It's like, this is the area that I'm going to deal with. And I think it's important for us to recognize God wants in there, too. God wants into the most secret, private parts of our lives. I think this is illustrative of even our modern days. So if we think about this, <clears throat> everything of what we do, everything in our lives, every activity of the human soul involves something that's very public and involves something that's very private. Uh, money, 
We can talk about how much people are making. We can talk about numbers. We can talk about salaries. We can talk about great economy. But you know what? Economy, money, finances is also tied to something that's deep and internal. Greed, insecurity, those things. There's something public and there's something private. When you are having relationships, um, there's something that's very public, whether you are officially declaring a relationship change on Facebook. But that is not what makes the relationship. There's also some things very deep, very personal that you bring to the relationship as well. And for, for anybody in this room that, that is in any relationship, you know that the dating and the flowers and the movies and all those things that you do, that's one part of the relationship. But that other person, that other person brought some stuff, secret stuff into the relationship. Oh, wait, that comes with it? Yeah, that comes with it too. <laughs> I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me too. Success is the same way, climbing the corporate ladder, wanting, wanting to gain something. Oh, sure, you can change the letters on your title, but what's also going on is what's changing in here regarding your levels of responsibility for whatever organization you lead, for whatever position you hold. I think this is also true when it comes to other kinds of things like addiction. We know when you think about it, when those of you who are in ministries that are dealing with people that are having these challenges, you know that there's behavior that needs to change. But the behavior isn't the only thing that needs to be attended to. In fact, most oftentimes, the behavior, the thing that you see, is not the most important thing. It's the thing that you can't see. It's the secret thing. It's the private thing. It's the personal thing. It's whatever it is that's in here that you have to attend to. Whenever there's a breakup or a disillusion, sure, there's paperwork that has to be done and stuff, but there's something much more personal and private that is happening. And in leadership, that is something that also needs to be attended to as well. You can talk about how you lead organizations. We had a wonderful um, volunteer appreciation um, yesterday, and we talked a little bit about our leadership philosophy and what's, what's important to us. There are things that we do publicly. There are things that we make sure that we, we have in place publicly, but what's most important about leadership and about running an organization, that goes for your family, that goes for your small group, whatever, is what's going on in here. How do you think? What do you think? feel? What do you actually believe about the people that you're with? That personal private thing that's going on up here, that is just as important, if not more important than what happens out here. And then when I think about other kinds of things like reactive attachment disorder and children growing up without um, healthy attachments to other people, you know, there's all sorts of behaviors that are very challenging and difficult for kids that are struggling with this psychology. But changing the behavior is not the issue. That's the thing that you see that's public. What's really going on and the thing that needs to be attended to is the secret, private, dark thing in here. It's kind of like a civil war that's going on in your brain that you desperately need the love and the attention of somebody, but you're desperately fearful and concerned of how they're going to hurt you. That's the thing. That's the, the private thing that's going on. I think... Um, not understanding this leads to legalism. I think not understanding that there's personal and private things that need to be attended to is what leads to people just simply imposing rules and regulations on other people. Like, you have to do behave this way. And 
all of you know that if, you were, if it was just behavior modification, if it was just about getting you to do and behave the right, that leaves you empty. And it's like, th- this is not a relationship. This is not a covenant. This is not something wonderful. This is something weird and distant, and I don't feel connected. So not understanding personal and private in all these realms leads to legalism. <clears throat> if you're ever in missions work or trying to do justice work, um, this is a book that I would recommend. And in this book, the authors talk about when helping hurts, they talk about the concept of giving money, giving provisions, changing policies and governments and all those kinds of things. Those are important. But they spend a whole bunch of time talking about, you know what needs to really change? Is the poverty of mindset that you think. And by the way, all of us have a poverty mindset. And if we can first understand that, that personal private thing in here, that is the thing that's going to make you successful in the ministries and the things that you go forward. So, I hope this opens up a whole bunch of conversations because I think this has implications in all sorts of different areas. When God comes to Abraham, and through this story, and again, all the stories that we've been telling in Genesis, ever since Genesis chapter 1, all the way through this story, God is seeking out to create and provide his covenant and relationship with the entire world. He's trying to care desperately for every person on the face of this planet in every single way. And he's doing that through this person named Abraham. This is the next stage in this epic saga. And I think what God is doing here in this covenant is he's reminding Abraham, Abraham, you've got great, wonderful things This world is going to be blessed because of you. And there's great, wonderful public things. Your name is going to be great. You're going to have lots of children. And, you know, churches, you know, thousands of years later will be talking about you. But my covenant is not simply with the things that you do. And my covenant is not simply with the things that you will accomplish. And my covenant is not just with you and the things that are going to be made public. My covenant with you is also with the most personal and private parts of your soul. The, the thing that people don't see, the emotions that you wrestle with, the insecurities that you have, and all of that, Abraham, all of that is going to be marked. Don't get rid of it. Don't cut it off. Don't think that that needs to go away. Mark it. Whatever it is that's in here that you wrestle with, that you struggle with, mark it and use it in your calling. Whatever the thing is that's in here, remember that I gave that to you as well. Mark that. Use that. My covenant is with you right there as well. So let me ask a couple things. I want to ask the question, what does it mean for God to make a covenant with the most personal and private parts of you? Here's just some closing thoughts that I would commend to you. First is this. It's very clear and it's a reminder that absolutely nothing is hidden from God. And all of us, including myself, struggle with things that are deeply personal and private here that I don't even think God knows about. That's how close and tight I hold on to them. But this reminds me, God is even there. And he wants to have a covenant relationship with that. Number two, just like God covenanted with Abraham in his most personal and private parts of who he is, I think God is covenanting with you in your most personal and private parts. Now, that could feel like, oh, God is invading. I don't see it that way. I see that as belonging. As a God who comes into that area that, you're, that you hold so close and so tight, 
and God is comforting and caring and taking care of you. When you go into that relationship and you're struggling with the, the thing that you have to wrestle with in here, God is attending to and caring for that piece of who you are. When you're going into that next job and you have some insecurity about what it is or competition, whatever, and you're struggling with all of that inside, God is wanting to come along and care about that particular part of who you are. And that most personal private parts, all of that within you, God is asking, I think, all of us to mark it, to consecrate it, leverage it, use it. If you've struggled, if you've wrestled, if you've had those things go on in, in here, even that can be used in your calling and in your life. And then the last thing that I think is most important in this goes back to the first thing that I said, which is God is El Shaddai, the sufficient one. And that, if there are things in the personal and private parts of yourself that you wrestle, that you struggle with, that you're not quite sure about, God is going to be enough to meet you right there, wherever that part of you is. It's hurtful, it's painful, it's confusing, it's something that you're not quite sure how to manage, how to deal with. And as you mark it and as you use whatever that thing is, in accordance with God's calling and covenant in your life, he will be sufficient to care about even that. And that's private parts. God, I bless you tremendously for these, these stories. I thank you for your word. And in all of these stories, God, there can be some confusion sometimes. But, Lord, I ask that you would help us be illuminated as to what it is that you may be speaking to us. Lord, I know that there's people in this room, including myself, that wrestle with the the things that people don't see, the personal and private parts of ourselves. God, I ask that in this moment and as we sing, you would meet them there and you would be sufficient. You would be enough. You would be El Shaddai for them. God, meet us here. And may your covenant of love and grace with all of us be not just with us publicly, but be with us privately. And may we find comfort and solace and redemption and hope in knowing that you are there caring and loving us, even in the most personal and private parts of who we are. In your name, amen.